1: March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call.
2: In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits, stripped from their frames, were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, The heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant.
1: In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
2: I am doing great, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing great. But most importantly, how are you? I am
1: doing great, Lance. Thank you so much for asking we are just before the dawn here of the 32-year anniversary of the Gardner Heist, obviously from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. And this episode, Lance, we speak with Eric Euliss and a friend of his, Stephanie Rabinowitz, who happened to date and, I guess, be friends with one of the main suspects in the Gardner Heist.
2: You said something right off the top there that we're coming up to the 32-year anniversary. Think about 32 years ago. Um, what was it like? Because I I wasn't in the Boston area, and I know you were. Do you remember that, 32 years ago? I do have a flash
1: of a memory of uh, seeing the Boston Herald or being told of this loss that morning, or maybe it was the morning after. I'm not sure if the, the Herald was printed with that news that very morning, but I, it was probably the next day. But yeah, it was significant. I remember, I remember talking about it, and probably, definitely, not really understanding the um, the cultural relevance, but that some significant crime had
2: occurred. And we had the really unique opportunity to get a glimpse into that past through our guest, Stephanie Rubinowitz. Like you said, she was the girlfriend of Brian McDevitt, who we've really never talked too much about when we've been covering the, the heist. Uh, we did season one, and he just kind of came up peripherally. Uh, we really didn't look into him too much. And she gives some really fascinating information, and she has some really fascinating uh, future information to come. So there will be another follow-up that will be probably even more riveting than this one and we will have another follow-up that will likely be even more insightful than this one. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, I
1: do want to give a shout-out to the Last Scene podcast. Uh, They did an episode about Brian McDevitt, and uh, it was I think it was called The Flim Flammer, and it was really interesting, and there was a phone call that was played on there, which was really, I guess, the last recording that um, anyone has of McDevitt, which is kind of uh, insane that it ended up on a podcast. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that goes to show, like, what the people around Brian McDevitt thought of him? Like that person obviously had the instinct to start recording during that call, you know, early in that call. So I think that says a lot.
2: Good point. And if anybody is on the fence about going to CrimeCon, Tim, we really want to see these people there as many people as possible. Go to CrimeCon.com and use code CrawlSpace for 10% off your standard badge. If you're on the fence, this this should push you right over. You should fall on the other side. Don't hurt yourself that's
1: right yeah use code crawlspace for 10 percent off crawlspace is obviously one of our other podcasts but we'll talk gardener with you if you uh, if we see you there just come up to us and uh say hi i'll talk gardening
2: if we see you there <laughs> i just want to see you there
1: well thanks a lot for listening everybody i hope you enjoy this episode check out eric's site at ericuless.com and i hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it Welcome back to the show, Eric Euliss, and welcome to the show, Stephanie Rabinowitz. How are you both doing today?
0: Great. How are you?
2: We're doing well. <laughs> We're doing so well um, because we produced many episodes of our podcast, Empty Frames, Starts off talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And then in season two, he's talk about other heists and other art history, cultural moments. Uh, and then season three, we revisit the heist. Uh, we were fortunate enough to connect with Eric. And what a small world that we're connecting with you, Stephanie, now. He, he was like, yeah, we talk all the time. We, you know, we're basically neighbors. Yeah. Um amazing thank you so much one for making the connection and two you're both joining us so thanks for taking the time to join us to talk about this uh i feel so i've been looking forward to this conversation for you know for a week now this is great
3: this will be a lot of fun actually and i think you're gonna get an idea of uh why stephanie is so important to this case especially as it pertains to to brian mcdevitt And uh, and again, like I said before in the previous podcast, I mean, in my mind, that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take uh, moving beyond this notion that somehow organized crime is involved with this and it's gonna involve looking at other suspects, people like McDevitt who by my estimation are very compelling. And and obviously Stephanie has a lot to say with respect to her time with Brian. And, And as I mentioned before, I think, quite frankly, she may possess some piece of knowledge that she isn't even aware of that could ultimately unravel the entire mystery and blow this thing wide open.
2: No pressure, though, Stephanie.
0: Hmm. I can only tell you what I remember.
2: And what's what's really interesting is that we covered a lot of theories and a lot of persons of interest uh, throughout the episodes of Empty Frames, but we never really got into McDevitt. Um, and I guess that's just like, I guess fate dealt us that card because who better to talk about this subject than than you, Stephanie? Um, can you give our listeners a bit of background on who you are and why you are probably the best person to speak about him?
0: Well, I actually lived in Boston. I went to college in Emerson College in Boston, and that's how I met him through one of my film teachers. He invited me to go uh, play it against Sam's. It was a comedy club or something. So he invited me to go that evening, and that's the night I met Brian. He introduced me to Brian as one of his former students. So, uh, yeah, that was the night I met Brian, and then we dated and pretty much hung out till the last time I saw him, 92, 92. And I met him in 89, yeah.
1: So you knew him for a few years, and um, I guess how how well did you know him? Like what – What kind of guy was he?
0: Well, he was fun. He was funny. Um, I thought I knew him pretty well, but apparently I didn't. And we went out all the time. um, Dinners, movies, shows. I hung out with him in his apartment a lot. He took me to Jamaica. And I met some of his friends that later on I found out were con men. Didn't know at the time.
2: Some of his friends that were con men.
0: Well, apparently maybe he was too.
2: Right. He's been described in in articles as a, a flim flam artist.
0: He was very smart and outspoken and just he acted like he was, or I thought he was, very smart. Had a lot to say. Knew a lot about the art world, museums. Never told me much about his family or his background other than he was from upstate New York or, but I didn't know anything about his past.
2: Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to deviate a little bit, but that's how some of our conversations go. The The more we do this work in, in this true crime industry, the more I, for lack of a better word, have respect for people who are con artists. I mean, I, I just watched a couple of documentaries that Blew me away because the amount of work that goes into pulling off a con requires you to learn about things like, you know, fine art, learn about all of that, learn about filmmaking, learn about the type of society that you're trying to infiltrate. It's so much work that goes into it, but ultimately the result is strictly for a selfish purpose. um, But I can get it. Like We all do things that we do because we get an adrenaline rush from it. And I can't imagine a bigger adrenaline rush than conning very rich people into doing things for you and you walk away. That's got to be... I mean, I'm talking myself into it right now, so I have to stop. But the more I read about Brian, the more, I guess, weird respect I have for him.
0: There was one incident, actually, it's kind of funny. Um, My father had a house. We used to uh, manufacture lingerie and we were One of, we were Oprah's favorite bra. So we had a big house in Connecticut on 105 acres, a a really nice house. And it was my father's 50th birthday. So we had everyone from the office come in and um, throw him a party. And Brian was invited. So Brian came to the house. And my father had a lot of paintings and expensive things around the house, as well as the actual chairs from King Louis XIV with the tapestry and everything sitting, you know, and, and back then I didn't think anything of it, but Brian walked around the house and scoped out some stuff, but it wasn't till and my father liked him by the way, but it wasn't until later that I, when I learned all this stuff that came out, that I thought, Oh my gosh, he was at my house. <laughs> like, I don't know what he was thinking.
2: Right. With, with all that stuff around and, could have been casing it, could have been working out some sort of plan in his head, hatching a scheme. Was-
1: Probably was at least casing it in some way, naturally, if, if if nothing else.
3: That may have served as somewhat of an inspiration for the heist, because if I'm not mistaken, this party occurred a couple of, like in February, wasn't
0: January's it? January is my father's
3: birthday. Okay, so. so it was in January, which one, one of the things that Stephanie hasn't said here uh, is that Part of what makes her so valuable as a witness to at least Brian is the fact that she kept a daily journal, a daily diary, very detailed day in and day out. And it covers the time frame, you know, many months and indeed years leading up to the uh, event, which took place March 18, 1990, including the day itself and then beyond that as well. So uh, it's really invaluable for someone like me to read through these, these, these day-to-day accounts of her life with Brian and to, and of course, she knows nothing of you, know, his past or, or anything of that nature, or for that matter, uh, the, the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. But it's just fascinating to read the accounts of what was transpiring, what was taking place, what Brian was doing, and, and things of that nature. Uh, so that's part of what makes Stephanie, I think, really invaluable for someone like me who's researching this case and it has a particular interest in somebody like McDevitt. But to kind of step back a minute here to what you were referencing earlier, uh, I agree. When you t- when you look at con men or, or just con women, I guess, or I'm sure there are con women as well, but people of that ilk, um, it's it's remarkable because it's clear that that these people oftentimes are very bright and very talented but for whatever reason they opt to uh leverage or utilize these you know these talents uh, for uh, nefarious reasons Uh, you know I, i look at somebody like brian and i think man if this guy had just focused his talents on something above board something legal there's really a lot that the guy could have done and there's probably not much the guy couldn't have done, but for whatever reason, there was just something about his, his character, his makeup, that, that uh, he just didn't roll that way, man. He just decided, you know what, I, I want to be on the other side of the fence as far as, as, far as uh, the law is concerned. And, and there you go. So it's real, it is fascinating. It is very, very fascinating from a psychological perspective uh, to, to analyze people like Brian.
1: Yeah. And and to that point, Stephanie, you mentioned that um, he had friends that you learned afterwards were kind of con people, too. I'm curious how you learned that they were con people.
0: Well, when I went to Jamaica, to me, they were just his friends and he introduced me to them as his friends. So I went on a trip with Brian and his friends and they brought their girlfriends. So I didn't think anything of it. And then it wasn't until later in Then I moved to California, I'm jumping all over the place. I think when everything started to come out, the teacher that introduced me to Brian later told me that the men that we went to Jamaica with turned out to be con men and one was wanted. And I think the other one died or got killed. It's all in my journals, I'd have to go back. I mean, this is 30 years ago.
3: Let me help out a little bit here. Uh, Brian, Even though he was uh, in and out of court and in and out of trouble with the law, uh, you know, really throughout the entire time that he knew Stephanie and and they dated, she knew nothing of this. And, you know, there were court appearances, there were, uh, you know, getting guilty pleas, things of this nature. There were interviews with the FBI that took place. Shortly after the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum heist, none of which she was aware of, Stephanie was aware of, and there's there's nothing in her in her journals that that discuss any of that at all. So it's it's uh, it's it's fascinating, but all of this for Brian kind of blew up in 1992. At this point, by the time 1992 rolls around, Brian's living in Los Angeles. Uh, he's pretending to be an accomplished writer. Uh, He was involved with the, uh, I guess, the Writers Guild or or something of that nature in LA at this point. And basically, uh, he got outed. And uh, there's a big, long story, which I won't get into how that happened. But what ended up happening was uh, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe, all in 1992, uh, did articles about Brian and the fact that he was a suspect in the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. And they kind of tied it in with uh, some of what was going on with Brian and his affiliation with the Writers Guild in LA. He apparently misrepresented his credentials to to gain uh, membership. And uh, so it ended up being a big kerfuffle, a big issue. <laughs> Ultimately, That led to, in 1993, 60 Minutes actually doing a piece on Brian as well. So my understanding, and Stephanie, you can verify this, my understanding is that you weren't even aware of really kind of anything related to Brian's past until all that shit hit the fan in 1992. And at that point, Brian was outed like in a very big way, you know, kind of globally, nationwide. And uh and that kind of set up in in place a whole another series of events and things in, in, in Brian's life. But isn't that, is that about right? Was it 92? Yeah,
0: there was. Um, there was a time in Copley Square we were hanging out and he told me something that I wrote in my journal, you'll come across that date, where I was so shocked to hear it and I didn't really fully write it down. But I'm wondering if that's when he told me about the first uh, robbery he did.
2: Okay, good, good segue because um, we jumped right into it, and I don't. Perhaps some listeners are like, "Wait, how is Brian McDevitt connected here?" Can you take us back a little bit more to um, why his name is even associated with the heist and and the similarities between the one that he was arrested for was it the Hyde Museum.
0: Yeah, well, Eric might know more about it than I do because I um, didn't know anything about it, and then when Brian told me something that shocked me, I'm thinking it was about that. And
2: he, yeah, he was Mr. Vander or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the uh, Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. Yeah.
0: Okay.
2: I'm a Vanderbilt too. <laughs> Tim's a Vanderbilt. We see, you just be a Vanderbilt. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm actually probably the person uh, best suited to kind of give a little bit of background as far as Brian is concerned. And in, in this part, yeah, he uh, in, in 1980, he conjured up this idea of uh ripping off a bunch of art from the Hyde Museum in upstate New York and uh, ultimately he crafted a pretty elaborate plan that involved you know duct tape and ether you know he ended up basically he found somebody to do this with him and essentially uh, they they, they studied the layout of the museum and you know uh, looked became familiar or at least Brian became familiar with the artwork in the museum, uh, kind of put together, I guess, basically a shopping list, if you will. But uh, as far as that goes, uh, he inquired about, you know, the alarm system and things of that nature. Was there any kind of panic buttons or, or anything of that nature in the, in the museum? This is the hide we're talking about again in 1980 and Brian is, is 20 years old at the time. Uh, also, uh, ultimately, the plan that is hatched is he the his partner and he uh, essentially uh, ha- have a FedEx driver you know drop by a, a particular location to pick up a, a package. When the FedEx driver shows up, a 26 then 26 year old uh, woman, uh, they basically kidnap her and uh, Brian talks, you know, blindfolds her and everything else, uh, offers to uh, give her some, uh, basically what Brian tells her is, listen, if you cooperate and don't make a a big stink about it or whatever, uh, you know, you'll receive money basically uh, down the road. Uh, also said that he didn't want to hurt her or anything of this nature, try to sort of, you know, assuage any kind of concerns that she had about her particular health and, all, and safety and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the plan was, is, was to, you know, knock her out with ether. So they did. They actually had ether and, and knocked her out and she was laying in the back of the FedEx truck. Uh, Then my understanding is they were to don a FedEx uniform and show up at the museum right before it closed, pretending to be essentially, you know, FedEx drivers. The problem was that they got held up in traffic. As ridiculous Mm -hmm. as that sounds, they got held up and delayed in traffic there uh, in the Glen Falls area, which is where the museum is. And uh, by the time they got to the museum, the museum had closed. And so to make a long story short, they ended up getting busted. And part of what makes uh, Brian fascinating is that the MO that, that he uh, was to, the, the MO that he used, the plans that he crafted as far as the, the Hyde Museum uh, robbery was concerned, uh, were very similar ultimately to what happened ten years later with the Isabella Gardner Museum. So naturally, when the Gardner Museum uh, was ripped off ten years later in 1990, uh, McDevitt immediately hit law enforcement screen. They said we got to we got to check into this guy, and uh, so they did. and And my understanding is he was one of the very first people that you know fingerprints were submitted uh, and and so forth, and they interviewed him. Uh, shortly thereafter. That is, the FBI interviewed him shortly thereafter uh, about the Isabella Gardner Museum. uh, And that's kind of where Brian's name enters the orbit related to the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. And one one critical thing that I want to mention here, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast, part of what makes Brian a compelling suspect, in addition to the fact that the age is right, he was, he was, you know, around 30, early 30s at the time that the Gardner Museum heist took place. Uh, the other thing is that, in um, the MO, of course, was, was very similar. The other thing is that one of the two guards that night at the Isabella Gardner Museum, there was Rick and Randy, the two guards that, that happened to be on the premises that night and they were ultimately bound and chained up and everything else. Uh, one of them, Randy, who I'm absolutely convinced had nothing to do with this. Uh, he said later that with 90 to 95 percent certainty, he, he believed that Brian McDevitt was the guy who actually uh, brought him downstairs and taped him up and handcuffed him and, and everything else to the, to the uh, I guess, one of the, a pipe or something downstairs in the, on the, on the, in the basement of the Isabella Gardner Museum. So there are a lot of things like that that are very compelling. And I think keep Brian in, in the mix as far as that goes.
1: And I understand um, the FBI interviewed you as well, Stephanie, about Brian's uh, potential yeah. involvement.
0: He actually told me that the F- there's a chance the FBI might come and talk to me and ask me if I would be his alibi. He asked if I would tell them that he was with me that night and I hesitated well, I didn't want to lie to the FBI, but I also was not an American citizen. So I, and I was young. So I thought, oh my gosh, if I lie and they catch me, they're deporting me. And I didn't want to leave. So I couldn't do it. And he asked me a few times to do that. And when I told him I couldn't do it for my reasons, he was, he was mad. He was angry. Like you could tell he was, he was pissed off. He was like,
1: Right. Not abusive or anything like that. No, no,
0: no. He was never abusive. He was very sweet to me, um, charming, but never physical. So I never thought he was a, a murderer or a criminal in that sense, but I didn't realize he was, you know, what he was.
1: So did you ever speak with the FBI?
0: Oh, yeah. So they came to my house and this is now I'm living in California. And they interviewed me and I just sat there and listened. I didn't say a lot because this was my first interaction with the FBI and I was so nervous. So I just was very bland. Yeah, no. But the lady gave me her card and I think she knew I knew more and said, if you think of anything later or if anything comes up later, give me a call.
1: And what was the impression that you got from them in that, um, in that conversation or conversations?
0: Well, I just, part of me couldn't believe, I was like, is this real? Like, this is the guy I dated and why is the FBI at my house? And I had no clue, but I didn't know that Brian asked me to, you know, be his alibi. And I, it was just, everything was processing.
2: So is, I, I'm sorry, he was asking you to be his alibi for
0: the, FBI. the night of the heist? Yeah, he said, he asked me if I would be his alibi. He said, the FBI will probably be reaching to you will you be my alibi for that night? And just say, you were with me.
2: Did he say it's because I was home alone and I don't have an alibi or did he follow up with anything?
0: No, I just remember him, you know, I'd have to go back and read it, but, um, this this is
2: where I can add something here
3: as noted. Stephanie kept a very detailed diary uh, day in and day out during this entire period of time. Um, what happened is a couple of days before the heist took place, which again was Sunday, March 18th, very early in the morning, Brian had mentioned to Stephanie that he was going to be going to an awards event for the writer's guild in New York city. Therefore he would be out of town that weekend, just coincidentally the weekend of the heist. So uh, he took off apparently for New York on, I believe it was March 16th. And uh, then on the, in Stephanie did not speak with him at all during the, the the 17th or the 18th, which again, 18th is when it took place until the night of the 18th. So Brian called up Stephanie the evening of the 18th. Again, this would have been at this point you know 12 or so maybe even more hours after the heist had taken place and uh this is the first time stephanie had talked with him in a in a couple of days and then she ended up and he apparently had just come back from new york for this writers guild awards thing or what have you and then she actually saw him uh, for the first time on the 20th tuesday the 20th she finally saw him again so what i'm getting at is between March 16th and March 20th, Stephanie didn't see Brian at all. And there was, that, that. course, a couple of day period where there was no communication at all, which just happens to overlap the, the time of the heist. Why this is important is because it was a bullshit story. There was no Writers Guild event in New York City over that weekend. In fact, the Writers Guild event that year, I believe, took place in April. Took place a month later. So when the FBI interviewed Brian shortly after the heist, Brian had a problem. He did not have an alibi. So what Stephanie's talking about here is that when the FBI started talking with her again, two years later, 1992, by this time, she's living in LA. And by coincidence, Brian is also living in LA, even though they're not living together, they're not dating really. Um, Brian gave Stephanie a heads up say hey the FBI is going to probably interview you and again this is in the wake of all the publicity and everything related to the newspapers the the globe and everything else and Brian asked Stephanie to lie to the FBI and and tell the FBI that that weekend the weekend of the heist that uh, she was with him she he wanted her to be to provide an alibi she of course said no And that's part of what makes uh, this, uh, you know, Brian very, very interesting in my mind because what the hell is the guy hiding? What was going on? I mean, you know, where was he that weekend? Why is there no alibi? And I also have to ask the question, if the guy's not involved with the Gardner Museum heist, why, why does he need an alibi? I mean, even if he's up to kind of no good, like why not just tell the FBI? You know, I was up to no good. Uh, you know, I was hanging out with another woman or something. You know, what I mean, you see what I'm getting at? Like, mm-hmm. why go to that degree unless there's something really kind of big going on here? So, uh, so that's what we're talking about here, as far as that that alibi and, and the interview with Stephanie.
0: I did notice before he left for New York that he was very agitated, and, like nervous um on edge and then when he called me on the 18th he was happy he was like calmer chip cheery um a little like he could take a breath maybe
1: and that's probably not because he was wearing a i love new york uh t-shirt and uh sightseeing
0: he was probably relieved that whatever if if he's involved maybe he's like okay it's done
3: and the cool thing about this guys is this is in her diary like i can read the diary and she talks about you know oh brian finally caught called you know the evening of the 18th he was in a cheery mood like you can read you know these contemporaneous uh descriptions of brian with, of course, Stephanie having no idea of, you know, what was going on and what ultimately transpired. So that's what makes this so invaluable is that her perspective is contemporaneous and it's not colored at all by, you know, the realization that years later he's a suspect in in, in the case and everything. So again, there's, there's some very, very fascinating insights into what was taking place in, in Brian's life during that period of time?
2: I just have a couple of uh, comments, maybe a question in here. Um, I think it's so weird that he would say that he's going to the this Writers Guild party, this award ceremony, when that could so easily be proven false just by, you know... Uh, The FBI can simply make a phone call and find out (laughs) that this party didn't exist and that it was actually taking place a month later. So that's interesting to me that that's the excuse he used. It sounds kind of sloppy. Um, And I'm curious, Stephanie, what what did you tell the FBI when they asked? Did they ask you about the alibi? Did you say you don't know? He he said he went to New York.
0: They didn't ask me if I was his alibi or if I was with him. They didn't ask. um, That didn't come up. They just it didn't know, even come up. No, and they wanted to know what my involvement was with Brian, and to describe him as a person. Um, just find out, you know. I guess they wanted to know about his background or anything I knew about him, and I could only tell them what I knew, which was not much at the time. Yeah.
2: Did you end up relaying any of that information to him later to say? They didn't even ask me about the alibi, so I didn't even have to say anything. Did, was there any conversation? Did you tell
0: Brian, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I might have, because he, he did ask me. I told him, I said, oh my God, the FBI, you know, reached out and came to my house. Um, and he asked what I said, and I probably summed it up a little for him. But the alibi didn't come up.
1: And he never told you what he was
2: actually doing um, at that time?
0: No, he was at the Writers Guild.
2: i'm just curious like where your mind went when you realized what you were being questioned about because i know when it first happened it was obviously big news in boston but it pretty quickly became something where it was like these paintings are worth x amount now they're 100 million now they're 200 million now they're 300 million you know what was going on in your mind? Did you immediately get the gravity of the situation or was that more of a gradual um, absorption of it? I
0: think it was gradual because I was in disbelief and no, this cannot be true or, you know, he's my boyfriend. I don't believe it. So I don't know.
2: It's crazy to me. I mean, again, I'm going back to that, that, uh, you know, flim flam artist and that weird sort of respect to have, like part of me would be like, wow, you pulled that off.
1: I think that like a con person is only conning like the person, their their mark, you know, they're not actually becoming the expert, I think, you know, so I I think it's only sloppy is their game, I guess, is what I'm saying. So I think that all that actually fits.
2: Right, right. Gotcha.
0: I think maybe part of me didn't believe this was going on because he was so genuine and honest with me, you know, so he seemed.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure there was some honesty in there because that's how professional liars are. You, they, you weave in some of the truth. So that's that much harder to prove what the lies are. Have you thought
1: about how Brian would have gotten rid of the art or or sold it or,
0: or or anything like that? You know, the last time I saw Brian was at a, I used to work on the Ren and Stimpy show. And the Ren and Stimpy show was, di- well, not dying, but they, they called it like a funeral for the Ren and Stimpy show because they were ending it. So there was a party in, I think it was a restaurant or something in California. And I don't know how Brian knew about the party or knew that I was going to the party, but he showed up at the party. It was kind of weird. Um, I remember walking up the stairs and I just saw him standing at the top of the stairs and he was telling me, and he had a lot to drink. So he was just kind of like, you know, a little bit all over me. And then he would say, um, you know, I'm going to confess to you that I did this and I got paid 300, it was like 300,000 or something. And I have all this money now. So can, I'm planning on going to South America, get out of this country and come with me. And for a 20 year old, you know, that sounded great. And he'll take care of me forever. And I declined that too. Didn't go, Um, but that's the last time I saw him or he confessed it or uh, I I wish I could. And I didn't write in my journal the name he told me. So that drives me crazy because I was, I was just so afraid. I didn't know, you know,
1: but he did go to South America, huh?
0: Apparently (laughs)
3: like, like, like think, let that sink in for a minute. He actually confessed to Stephanie about this thing. And it was June 25th, 1992. That was the last time Stephanie saw him or spoke with him. And indeed, uh, shortly thereafter, he bolted. He left for South America and never came back.
1: Because of the grand jury, he was afraid of an indictment?
3: Well, that's one of the things that he said, that he had heard that an indictment was coming down because he was put in front of a, a grand jury and uh and also the fbi did the fbi's talked with stephanie multiple times so they did speak with stephanie after this and stephanie did tell the fbi uh that that brian had asked uh that brian had confessed stephanie told the fbi that brian confessed that brian said that he had received essentially 300 grand to rip the yard off and uh and that he basically needed to leave the country and uh True to his word, he did. He left the country and never came back.
2: That's something else. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. W- what did he tell you? Did, did he, he mentioned the gardener by name or he, he mentioned artwork.
0: I remember him saying someone and I cannot get the name paid him to get the artwork from the garden museum to give to this guy. And then, that, so basically someone hired him to do the job. Gave him the work or the artwork, and then the guy paid him, and then he did his job and he was done and he had to go. He had to leave the country.
2: So he got paid before?
0: Oh, I don't know when he got paid, but. Okay. Yeah, I don't know when.
2: And, and, but he told you the name of the person who gave them the money, and that person is different than the person who the artwork allegedly.
0: Yeah, I don't know who gave him the money. And I even actually tried to go to hypnosis to see if I can go back to that night, because that's the only way I can probably come up with it is if I relive that night. Um, I would have to go under hypnosis with a really intense person who can do it because I have a really strong mind and I don't think I can just be hypnotized. But if I could ever somehow go back to that night,
2: I, I smell a follow-up episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that I, so I just want to, in my own brain, he was paid $300,000. He was approached by an individual who gave, who who said, I'll pay you $300,000 to retrieve these paintings for another person. For him. Oh, for him. Oh, it was for it was, him. It okay. was
0: for him. But all I know is he, I, I just remember Brian saying, so-and-so paid me $300,000 to get the artwork for him. That's all I heard. And I don't know if whoever paid him kept it or distributed it, or I don't know what happened.
2: Well, that's interesting because it would have to be somebody who was aware of him. And, you know, you're talking about a day that was not back in social media where you could just sort of like friend somebody. They had to have known that he had tried to, you know, he had a history of this.
0: Yeah, maybe they knew his history from New York. So he was a good, I don't know.
2: And this is yeah. this is interesting
3: because when he got busted 10 years earlier in New York, he basically opened up like a you know a cheap novel to the authorities explaining what he, you know, how this whole thing was hatched and what came about. And he was almost braggadocious about you know confessing to the amount of detail and so forth that he had put it and the amount of research he had put into the Hyde Museum his plan in that particular case was to clean out the museum and then take the artwork down to a fence in Florida and somehow sell it or unload it there with somebody in Florida and then jet off to parts unknown. So, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, I don't know if this was sort of like, you know, art, massive art theft 2.0 for, the, for on the part of McDevitt, and, and he was ultimately successful, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that uh, you know he was kind of AWOL. There were a lot of gaps uh, between Stephanie and Brian during that time, a lot of time that we cannot account for, that I cannot account for in Brian's life. Brian did not have a job. Brian did not have a job, but somehow he managed to get by. And he actually flew to LA six days after the heist. The Saturday after the heist, he actually flew to L.A. and he was back there for a short period of time. And shortly thereafter, moved to L.A. and rented a house in the Hollywood Hills. So like I'm reading these stories about Brian and I'm familiarizing myself with Brian thinking, this guy has no job, but he's like renting places in the Hollywood Hills. He's traveling to L.A. I mean, the guy was up to something. We know that for sure. He was up to no good. Now, as to whether this is somehow related to you know, the Gardner Museum heist, who knows, but according to Stephanie, Brian outright confessed to the heist. This took place, again, he confessed in 1992 after he was outed. Uh, In addition, uh, Brian asked her for that alibi, you know, to, to tell the, to provide an alibi for him to the FBI. So again, this is part of what I'm talking about when we're looking at somebody like Brian McDevitt, There's a lot of circumstantial and and, uh, evidence and suspicious activity on the part of Brian that makes a guy like me wonder, you know, is there something more here than perhaps meets the eye?
2: What was it, um, if anything specific, that Randy could identify when he said, I'm positive that that was him? Was it the voice? Was it just his appearance, a combination of a bunch of stuff?
3: The one thing that Randy said about the individual, the thief that tied him up is that he was actually very kind to him. Uh, when the handcuffs were put on him and he was dragged downstairs, on he actually spent quite a bit of time adjusting the handcuffs. And he told Randy, this thief said, you know, is, is that too tight? Is that going to be OK? Whatever, because you're going to be here for a while. And he even said, hey, listen, you, know, you know, I'm sorry to be doing this to you, almost kind of apologetic as far as that's concerned. And basically said, hey, listen, if you guys kind of keep quiet about this thing in a year from now, you know, you'll receive some money. We'll we'll hook you up with some cash. So uh, the thief, ironically, treated Randy quite well and appeared to genuinely be concerned about, like, not scaring the shit out of the guy and making sure he was comfortable because he knew he was going to be there for a while. The this is very similar to how Brian dealt with that FedEx woman ten years earlier. Very very similar in terms of the, the language that was used and the the concern that he had for this person, letting you know her know that she you know she wasn't in harm's way or anything of that nature. Kind of sorry to be doing this to you. Uh, so that's that's it. But as far, I can't really speak to what what Randy. Uh, in terms of a voice or what have you. But what Randy said is that when he was looking at pictures of suspects, because they obviously started throwing pictures in front of him. And I would imagine this was immediately right off the, right off the top. uh, Randy said that he recognized the picture of McDevitt as, as 90 to 95% certain that that was the guy that was involved with the heist that actually tied him up, brought him downstairs. So Make of it what you will. I mean, again, perhaps Randy is wrong. Uh, I don't know. One other thing is that the the guys were wearing fake mustaches. McDevitt, in the Hyde Museum heist, the two guys were to wear fake mustaches. So there's a lot of similarities and things like that that kind of make you wonder. But uh, getting back to Randy here, yeah, Randy says he's 90 to 95% sure that McDevitt was the guy based upon uh, the, the pictures and stuff that he saw of McDevitt. Uh, along with other suspects shortly after the heist took place.
1: And uh what do you think, Stephanie? Do do you think um those composite sketches or or one of those composite sketches minus the mustache could look like, Brian?
0: I think the guy that has more of a square jaw, uh, you know, shorter face. I could see Brian in that.
1: Right. And and you obviously um you think he's he's one of the most likely uh thieves.
0: I think so. And uh, I mean, he confessed it to me. I don't know if he did it to show off or why he did it or why would he say that to me?
1: Have you ever been to the Gardner Museum? Yes. Did you visit with Brian?
0: No, I never knew about it till after I went to visit. uh, Anthony Amore gave me a tour of the museum.
1: Oh, cool. He gave us one, too.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. He loves us. (laughs) (laughs) Took us up to dinner, drinks. It was so fun. So, okay. He, uh, he was in LA when you were in LA, but earlier, I think, uh, Eric, you said that it was just by coincidence. And then when he was at the party that you were at, he so just,
0: he, when he moved to LA. He wanted me to move with him. He wanted me to go to California with him and live with him. And, uh, I ended the relationship before. And then when he found out I was going to California, he, he just kept in touch with me. I went to visit him at his house, which had a beautiful it's one with the stilts, you know, with a nice view. So I've been to his house and he just kept in touch with me. And then I also worked as a groomer. So between that and Ren and Stimpy, he would come to, he would show up at my work and take me out for lunch a few times. And that's when he asked me about the alibi. That was the first time he brought up the alibi. And then he brought up He, he had a phone call with someone and I don't know if she was the producer to his writing, but he asked me something. I'd have to go back and read it. Um, Or if you go back and read it and remember it. Um, He asked me to be or say something to this woman. Maybe it was another confession or I was with him or something.
2: Interesting. Um...
0: And I, I said, I wouldn't do it either. And he was mad.
2: What were the circumstances of the breakup?
0: Uh, Well, I just was done.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it must be exhausting to be with somebody like him.
1: Yeah, he seems like a a friend who wants a lot in return. (laughs) Um, Unclear what he's giving as a friend.
3: Stephanie's been very gracious. She's let me peek into her private life here, reading through the diaries uh, and so forth. So I I can see that, uh, you know, and it's around about the time that the heist took place is when things really kind of started to go south in the relationship. And uh, if I may speak yeah, on true. your behalf here, it, it appears to me, my impression is that uh, a lot of what contributed to it was Brian was just gone. The guy was just a There were, you know, there would be two, three days where they would didn't even speak by phone, uh, let alone actually see each other. And I could just tell from Stephanie's writing that that got kind of old.
0: I, I think, mean, yeah, I, I think I was getting fed up with everything.
3: Yeah.
1: Now, when you lived in Boston, um, I think I heard that you lived in Alston. Is that accurate?
0: I lived in Alston when I met him. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Did you happen to know any of the other, uh, or any of the security guards, um, like Rick or Randy? I only
0: met Brian's friends that I went to Jamaica with, and we um, we went to a couple shows. We went to see what was that movie? Gone with the Wind, I believe it was. It was a premiere on the... He used to go to a lot of premieres, because as a writer, you get to do these things. And we went to see the movie, and it's in my journal. I'll have to come across it, but there was, he caused like a scene in the theater and he put his jacket on the person's chair in front of him and the person and him got into an argument because obviously when you're sitting down, you want, you don't want someone else's jacket on your chair. And he got up and left to go complain or do something. You'll have to find that page. (laughs) Um, But he made a scene at the, at the movie. And I was just like, Oh my God.
2: And did he tell you what he did for work other than being a writer? Because was did he actually like sell screenplays? Was he actually a writer? He was
0: just the writer for the Wonder Years and working on it. And that's all he worked on. But and he, he was wasn't. Writer. He was just a writer. And he used to have stacks on his desk, like really thick stacks of scripts that he wrote or was writing because he was the writer. And I, you know, I didn't question him.
3: The important thing here is that it's, total bullshit the guy the guy yeah. wasn't a writer for anybody like he fantas he fancied himself being a writer but he didn't he didn't work didn't write anything for the atlantic didn't write anything for the new yorker he wasn't writing for any shows this was the story that he told stephanie and others uh but that it, it just wasn't the case so it begs the question, well, what the hell is this guy doing? Where is he coming up with his money? So it's obvious that the guy was involved with some sort of nefarious activity. And I think that uh, the court records prove as much because again, even leading up to uh, the, early part of, the early part of 1990 leading right into where the, the heist took place, uh, he had recently been busted uh, a couple of times for stealing items. Uh, He was actually uh, convicted in one case, and in another case, he pled guilty. This is all leading up to the Gardner Museum heist. And of course, there's nothing in Stephanie's journals about any of this stuff. So, you know, a lot of the gaps (laughs) that took place, like the days that they wouldn't see each other or talk or whatever, make a lot of sense, because that was one of the things I wondered from the from the get go is all this activity was you know he was involved in all this kind of crap and he you know, had problems with the law and everything this entire time how did he manage to sort of navigate all of that and deal with all this stuff without her knowing but reading through the journals and so forth it's obvious that there was plenty of time there for him to kind of be dealing with all of this stuff but uh, but to kind of flip back as well talking about Alston Yeah. I mean, that's where Abbott lived. Abbott lived in Alston. So that was one of the things that I remember asking Stephanie is, you know, is it did you guys go out and like listen to music? Did you go ever, you know, I mean, is there any possibility that perhaps uh, uh, Brian actually came across Rick Abbott because they're in the same neighborhood? They're in the Alston neighborhood. And, uh, you know, to the best of Stephanie's recollection that that didn't happen, that she doesn't distinctly remember anything of that nature, but it definitely is intriguing. It's, you know, it is intriguing to consider the possibility that there was some sort of a connection or or what have you between Abbott and, and McDevitt related to that Alston area.
0: Brian didn't have a car. Brian didn't have a car in in Boston and but he did rent a car before he was leaving for California. And I was riding around with him and he drove, I don't remember the street, but he drove and parked and said, just wait here, I'll I'll be right back. So I waited in the car and he went to a garage to, I don't remember if he brought a towel or something, but he, he went into the garage and then I waited in the car and then I saw him coming out, holding something really big, covered. And then he opened up the trunk, put it in, and then it was big enough. You know, when you put something heavy in a trunk, it kind of goes, it goes down a little. Um, So he put something in there, came back in the car, and I said, what was that? And he said, oh, I've had my eye on this moped seat for a while, and I wanted to get that seat so I could have a new seat. So when I went to California, I would have a seat for my moped or something. But like, he already had his eye on this (laughs) moped.
2: So he went into a public parking garage and stole the seat off of a a moped? Yeah, he had his
0: eyes on it and he went to go get That was like one of the last things he had to do before he left for California.
2: Do you remember what type of car he rented? Oh, no. That's the first
3: thing I thought about is what?
0: It was a small car. Um, Wow. (laughs)
3: Tell me, it was a Dodge Daytona. I don't know what
0: it. I don't know what it was. Oh if someone could find records of what he rented, that would be good. And I don't even know if he rented it under his name.
2: Do you remember? This probably doesn't mean anything, but just curious. You said that you stopped. He picked you up your in Boston. You stopped. Do you remember, like any any idea, like what the neighborhood was? Was it closer to like Fenway Park, or was it closer to like?
0: I remember the road that we stopped on was busy. Like, I'm a very visual person because I do paintings myself and I actually made Brian a painting, um, a black and white painting because he was so into the Three Stooges. So I made a painting of me and him sitting there with the Three Stooges behind us. That was his birthday present, I think. That's awesome. So I'm a visual person. If I could see that garage again, I would. And I could say, oh, yeah, that was it. I don't Oh. I don't
2: done i i will take i'll go on google earth and take screenshots of every every parking garage yeah. was it it was it a covered one or was it an open garage no it was covered he went in it was it was okay
0: yeah
2: all right and you know you brought up alston and rick and you know he was a musician alston is super small even back then it was even smaller the music venues there there's you know there's a handful of them we know that that Rick frequented those like he probably played gigs at some of those music venues. I'm just kind of guessing, but
0: I used to go to Harper's Ferry a lot. I I was a walk distance to Harper's Ferry and I'm trying to think if I ever went there with him. I might have invited him there because I used to go there. I'll have to see if I can ask some friends if they remember if we ever went there with him.
2: It's interesting. I I would love to uh if you want to um do another episode where you have your notebooks your journals they're sitting right over there actually (laughs) but yeah (laughs) what made you want to write everything down have you always done that in your life or was there something specific about
0: travel I used to travel a lot so my mom said um I was eight or nine years old and she said why don't you keep a journal of your trips and what you do because it will be fun for you so my very first journal I went to Italy and um I wrote in it and ever since then I just kept going
2: very cool Unlucky for him.
1: Do you think that um Brian is, is not with us anymore?
0: I think he I I don't know, but I think he's still alive. And my thing is the only way you can prove it is go dig up his grave and do a DNA because there's no I I, I mean, unless you find his DNA buried in the grave, I think he's alive. Really? I just don't know why, but um, sometimes I wonder if he's ever friended me on Facebook as someone else and if he's ever going to try and reach out again or not. I've always thought that.
2: Wow. I never considered that. That's, in, that's incredible. So he's going to Columbia, fakes his death. I mean, that, does that seem like something he would do? Obviously. I
0: kind of don't believe it, but I, like I said, I don't, I have no proof, but I don't believe he is dead.
3: Yeah, and the thing is, is that uh, he left for Brazil initially in the summer of 1992, and he was there for a period of time. He ended up in Medellin, Colombia, and that's apparently where he died in May of 2004. Uh, I have talked with Anthony Amore about about this, and um, Anthony did say uh, Anthony did say that uh, he has seen the hospital records for Brian because he died of kidney failure and that he has also seen his death certificate. Uh, okay, so that's, that, that's worth something there. It does appear that he did actually die in 2004. Now, having said that, it's Columbia. And uh, so who the hell really knows uh, what the the truth of the matter is. So um,
0: my teacher at the time who introduced me to him at the plate against Sam's, we've always kept in touch. And he told me, he called me. I don't remember where I was living. He called to tell me that he heard that Brian had died of HIV, had HIV and died. I don't know. I just couldn't believe it, but. That's what I was told. I did hear that um, it was a closed funeral. But the person who told me that, I don't know how much they knew. And they're not around anymore today either.
3: Well, you know, the other thing is that if he is dead, uh, that would explain, it could explain in part why we haven't seen any of the artwork, any of those 13 pieces. Now, you know, I know Brian said that he sold it for 300 grand or whatever the case may have, or he was kind of commissioned for 300 grand. You know, I I have to say, to me, that kind of sort of strikes me as a bullshit story on a number of different levels. First of all, $300,000 is overpaying for the art. Uh, At the time that it was ripped off, let's just take a figure of $200 million, because I was pretty commonly thrown about $200 million. Uh, You know, to get paid $300,000 for $200 million worth of art is is high. That's 15%. The going rate, the street rate is closer to, to 10%. Uh, for that kind of thing. And just given the amount of notoriety and so forth, you would almost think it would be, be somewhat less than that. That also, the $200 million figure also factors in all of it, all of the art. So again, in my mind, it just, it doesn't make sense that somebody would have a shopping list that included Rembrandt's to, you know, finials and a Chinese coup. I mean, you know, it just just sort of doesn't make sense. Like we talked about before, uh, it does appear that we've got almost, you know, two different crime scenes here as far as, you know, the type of art that was taken and so forth. Uh, So, um, you know, I, I would believe, I mean, I think it's believable that, okay, the target of the crime, the target of the theft was the Rembrandts, and that's what somebody was interested in, but I'm just having a hard time buying that somebody would have paid three hundred thousand dollars. So again, I hear that, that story, and I think, well, I can almost immediately kind of just say, well, there's at least some level of bullshit in that story. But kind of my impression of Brian is he's the kind of guy that maybe he got paid a hundred grand, but he's trying to impress Stephanie that he's loaded in that you know trying to convince her to move to South America with him. So, you know, instead of rolling out with the real figure of 100 grand, he's saying, yeah, I got paid 300 grand, you know, he strikes me as that kind of guy who's, again, he's the consummate comment, he's going to do or say whatever he needs to do or say to get what he wants. And if that involves inflating that figure a little bit, then then that involves inflating, inflating the figure a little bit. But uh, so, you know, that, the, the death and everything else could explain some of why we haven't heard anything related to any of those those pieces of art.
2: Yeah. Super interesting. It's, it's almost like this person told him, listen, give me the Rembrandts, get me the Vermeer, take whatever else you want. Just make it look like, you know, super random. You can keep them, whatever, or, you know, give them to me or something. But yeah, the inflating that number seems like it would make sense given his personality. Um, but maybe he got that after the fact too. Maybe he, maybe he received a hundred grand for certain paintings and then he orchestrated another deal for something. you know, the, the Che Tortoni and the um the, uh, the the finial maybe maybe he still has the finial somewhere in Colombia
3: I mean there's obviously an endless array of possibilities as far as this yeah. goes
2: you know my my impression
3: is if Brian's the guy let's just start with that Brian's the guy my impression is that he was commissioned to rip off the Rembrandt the Rembrandts and there were four of them and they only walked out with three. I think they screwed up and accidentally left one left behind, you know, maybe the, uh, the flink as well as the, uh, you know, that, that one used to be attributed to Rembrandt was later, you know, not attributed to Rembrandt, the one with the obelisk. Uh, so maybe somebody thought that that was a Rembrandt the Vermeer obviously is very valuable. So who knows? Did they think that the Vermeer was a Rembrandt or did they realize it was a Vermeer and was very valuable in and of itself? I don't know. But the point is, is I could see that the Dutch room art minus the coup really being, you know, the target of someone's, you know, commission. Uh, the other stuff, I could kind of see them just sort of grab it. Like, what the hell, let's just grab this cool stuff. You know, the Degas stuff and and the, you know, the finial and all that other kind of stuff. And if the deal was, and Brian basically said this, hey, I got paid, but the, you know, I got paid, but I'm, you know, I gotta kind of leave the country. I mean, I could kind of foresee a situation whereby the person who commissioned Brian, if Brian was the guy, kind of saying, Listen, you were paid to rip off these things, you kind of went overboard, took a bunch of other shit at the same time. Plus, you're still in the United States with, you know, the LA Times, the Boston Globe, and the New York Times writing about you. Like I could see why, all of a sudden he feels the pressure to get the hell out of Dodge and go to South America and hide. Uh, so who knows? Is that you know? Does that explain why he ended up down there and never coming back? I don't know, but you know, it, it is a little is a little bit odd why this guy would appear to run, especially if he's innocent. If he didn't actually commit the Gardner Museum heist, what the hell is he running from? What what is this all about?
2: Yeah. I- Started off this conversation like sort of on the other side of the fence thinking probably not involved, but then there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that makes sense that kind of falls into place. And we should say we should
3: say in in, in all fairness here that according to Anthony Amore uh, and, and the FBI, I guess, uh, they do they do not believe that uh McDevitt was involved with the crime. Now, Anthony has said that explicitly. I haven't heard the FBI say anything explicitly, but at least as far as Anthony is concerned, uh, he does not believe that McDevitt was involved in any way, shape, or form. He just thinks he was just a sort of a a con man trying to impress Stephanie. Uh, Perhaps he's right. I don't know. But like I said in the previous podcast, uh, the one thing I can say with certainty is that I have been unable to eliminate him as a suspect.
2: For sure, yeah, um, and I know I said in the beginning or throughout this that like there's a weird respect that you'd have for people like that. Um, I don't want to say that and say like I'm diminishing the damage that they do to other people. That just to be clear on that, um, there they while it appears on the surface to be victimless crimes, they do destroy people's lives, and I I. I see Stephanie sitting there, and you—you you look like you're a well-adjusted adult, and you look like you've, you know, been successful in anything you've done. So, but you're also talking to us about this, and and it's a part of your life, and it'll always be a part of your life. And you've been really gracious with your time, uh, but that takes a toll on you. So I get it. Like I get that somebody who does these sorts of things, even even on this level where you knew him for a short period of time, you're still getting questions. You're still having to sit down for interviews, you know. Try to remember things that seemingly were just like uh, incidental, or or you know, why would you ever remember what parking garage you stopped at in Boston with your with your boyfriend at the time? You'd never, you know, like going through that must be um not as not as easy as as uh, most people would anticipate it to be.
0: I think I've become used to it because every March, every year, something yeah. comes up, and then I just roll my eyes and say, "Here we go again." It's a constant thing.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you for your time. Uh, this, this is a captivating interview. I, um, can't wait to hear what the, uh, the audience reaction is. And, uh, yeah, as Lance said, I, I would love to do a follow-up as well. You
3: on board?
0: Maybe, maybe I'll come up with more stuff or things will come to me. I don't know.
3: Stephanie's a rock star. Maybe I
0: need to sit down and read all my diaries.
3: She she's a rock star. She's, a she's, she's actually been uh really very helpful. Uh, so, uh, yeah don't don't let her convince you that she you know hasn't contributed much because she's actually contributed an awful lot to this uh, to this investigation not only for me personally but obviously I know she's talked with Anthony and she's obviously interviewed with the FBI multiple times so Uh, I think she brings a lot to the table as far as this case is concerned. And I still think that there's a very real possibility that there's something, something that she knows. Somewhere
0: in this brain, there's gotta be something. that
3: is kind of like, uh, that may hold the key to solving this thing uh, once and for all.